Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In May 1796, an enslaved woman named Ona Judge fled the presidential household in Philadelphia. She escaped to freedom on a ship headed for New Hampshire. Judge's successful flight was one of many such escapes by the sea in the 18th and 19th centuries. Enslaved people boarded ships docked in ports great and small and used coastal waterways and the oceans as highways to freedom. We often learn about the Underground Railroad in school, but what about its aquatic counterpart? On today's episode, Dr. Timothy D. Walker joins me to discuss his new edited volume, Sailing to Freedom, Maritime Dimensions of the Underground Railroad, which was published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2021. Walker is a professor of history at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, and along with the contributors to Sailing to Freedom, Walker guides us towards new horizons in our quest to better understand this history. So batten down the hatches and let's sail to freedom with Dr. Timothy D. Walker. I was thinking, though, as I was reading your book, and I, having grown up in the Midwest, the Underground Railroad is a very powerful part of that history. And I grew up not far from the Ohio River, which was typically seen as the division between slavery and freedom. And a lot of houses I know built in the 19th century had secret compartments where individuals were held or not held, but hid as they made their way north, probably on the way to Canada. I hadn't really thought much about waterways as a means of escape, you know, beyond the Ohio River. I thought we might start by painting a picture of what people people usually think of when the term Underground Railroad is heard? Well, like you, I uh, I also grew up near the Ohio River. I'm from Southwest Ohio. I was actually born in Detroit, uh, where, of course, there were a lot of Underground Railroad crossings. And I grew up outside of Dayton, Ohio. And my upbringing, too, had a lot to do with the terrestrial side of the Underground Railroad. There were lots of stories that circulated around in the area where I grew up about passages and clandestine meetings and holding places for for fugitives. I never really questioned that until I moved to the East Coast for graduate school. And I came to Boston to work on my MA and PhD. And at the time, so I was working very much towards the subject of early modern European history and colonization. And I decided that if I wanted to know about that subject, I probably ought to know something a bit more viscerally about how sailing worked. And so like many Midwesterners, I started crewing on historic sailing vessels on the East Coast, maybe not knowing very much about it. You find a lot of Midwesterners in the tall ship fleet because I think they don't really grow up understanding just how dangerous the ocean can be and <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and, uh, and what's involved. But anyway, I started sailing out of Mystic, Connecticut on large schooners and, um, and continued to do that for the next 30 years and teaching aboard them. And then it became clear to me that through a variety of ways that the Underground Railroad should be rightly thought of not only as a terrestrial phenomenon, but also as something that happened very actively along the eastern seaboard. And this became most clear to me when I started working on a project with a local historian here in New Bedford, the president of the New Bedford Historical Society, whose name is Lee Blake. And about 12 years ago, she came to me with the idea to apply for a National Endowment of the Humanities Landmarks in American History Award to teach about New Bedford's role in the Underground Railroad 
to American kindergarten through 12th grade teachers. So we put together a program and were successful in our bid for funding. And we got to do that program three times between 2011 and 2015. And in the process of doing that, we brought in speakers who were specialists on people fleeing by sea along the eastern seaboard. And what came together was a kind of mosaic of pictures that taken collectively really showed that there was this rather understudied and underappreciated appreciated component to the Underground Railroad, which was entirely saltwater along the east coast of the United States heading northward. So after having done that for several years, I determined that that I would take upon myself to, even though I wasn't really a specialist in this at the beginning, I determined that I that someone needed to do a book about this. And because I had been the primary investigator of the of the National Endowment for the Humanities program, I decided to do this myself and to edit the volume. Well it's really cool that your personal experience sailing aboard ship and as <laughs> a learning how to get your sea legs after being landlocked uh, for the early years of your life kind of inspired part of this project. Well, t- tell us a little bit more about those maritime dimensions than of the Underground Railroad. One of the things that you know was sort of a, a, a jumping off point or a point of departure for us in the National Endowment for the Humanities program was when we first started doing this, it was not too long after Jeff Bolster had come out with his book, Blackjacks, about sailors of color in the American merchant and military marine in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And what Jeff showed in his book very clearly that a very large percentage of sailors on American ships were people of African descent on the order of nearly 20%, not quite, depending on the period that we're talking. Our point of departure was that, and knowing that there were a lot of people already working at sea who were usually free men of color, but might have been people who were still enslaved and turning their sailors' wages over to their owners and gleaning enormous experience from their opportunity to travel around. But what became clear in the course of then teaching about the Underground Railroad and how people successfully fled to the north. What really became the important and key thing to understand is that in the South, most of the waterfront labor, virtually all of the waterfront labor, is enslaved African Americans, usually men. So what are they doing? They are moving the plantation-produced crops by water down tidal rivers and streams to small harbors and ports, loading them on larger vessels, taking them to major ports where the plantation-produced goods are then put on seagoing vessels for shipment to markets. And all of that labor, the crewing of small boats carrying cargo, the waterfront labor to load and unload vessels, the maintenance of vessels, the crewing of service boats within the harbor that would be lighters to load and unload ships, ferry boats, a lot of fishing in the rivers of the South and in the near offshore fisheries, oystering. All this is being done by enslaved watermen. And because the men who are working on these coastal vessels and on the waterfronts are gathering strategic knowledge that then they can use, they can put it to use as they plan and implement their plans for escape. They learn the rhythms of the sea. They understand that ships have to sail with the tide. They look at the weather and they understand when a northbound vessel is going to leave port. They know when it's getting ready to clear customs. They often are doing the work of loading and offloading their cargoes. They understand the nautical hazards, the maritime reefs and and shallows and shoal waters that can be dangerous to vessels. And consequently, they gain the knowledge that allows them to flee to the north aboard ocean-going vessels. And we have to understand that jurisdiction of any waterfront municipality and indeed the United States Customs Service 
only extended out three miles from shore. And so a ship that leaves uh, a southern harbor is very, very quickly out of the reach of any legal authorities. And so someone who made it aboard a ship as a stowaway or with the cooperation of a northbound crew, they would be very quickly in a place at sea where they were unlikely to be intercepted. If you compare that to the experience of someone fleeing over land, even just a couple of days journey from a free state, the chances of being detected and recaptured and re-enslaved on land were orders of magnitude greater than being recaptured once you got out to sea. That leads me to wonder why our emphasis on the overland routes to freedom as opposed to these maritime dimensions when, as you say, enslaved workers who are working down at the docks, the waterfronts have acquiring all this knowledge, they're making connections with crews who are sailing north, and yet we're focusing on essentially the border states, you know, crossing from Kentucky into Ohio and moving further north. So I muse a little bit about that in the introduction of the book. These are sort of impressionistic ideas that reason why this has fallen out of American historiography about the Underground Railroad in the 20th century anyway, is that most historians don't have a maritime dimension to their training, and they don't focus on on maritime concepts and dynamics insofar as it intersects with land. And and so a lot of historians are simply not trained to look at maritime archives uh, and to appreciate how the movement of all goods in the 19th century along the eastern seaboard, but, but for most of what was then the United States, depended on maritime effort. There weren't very many roads. There were very, very few bridges and river crossings of the, of the main inlets along the eastern seaboard. And so the quickest and most efficient way to move large, heavy bulk goods was by water. And that remained true until the completion of, um, of major highways along the East Coast. So that's one reason. But if you look at older considerations of the Underground Railroad, William Siebert's book that comes out in 1898 has a very well-known and often reproduced map of the Underground Railroad that he traced through primary sources and through interviews with people who had experienced it. He includes Underground Railroad routes at sea on his map. Uh, and he also included quite a fair amount of information about it in the interview interviews that he reproduces in the book. Also, if you look at the journal of the Underground Railroad, for lack of a better word, station master in Philadelphia, this book, which he publishes shortly after the American Civil War, is illustrated, and many of the illustrations depict incidents that happen at sea uh, or on in ports of ocean, with ocean-going vessels being searched for fugitives. So the late 19th century accounts of the Underground Railroad are very much aware of the maritime component, but you just don't see it much in the 20th century work. That's really interesting because we, especially early Americans, we write a lot about transatlantic trade, tracing the connections between ports of like Norfolk and Virginia and London and Liverpool, places like that. But the intercoastal trade doesn't get as enough attention as it probably should. And, and therefore, it seems like we've, we've probably missed this element of the Underground Railroad. I'm curious about geographic distinctions and how that factors into an enslaved person's calculations to flee. Is it the case that you see more enslaved people fleeing from what becomes eventually the Deep South in the 19th century? Or is it fairly even across places like Virginia, Charleston, Savannah, even down on into Florida? The real concentrations of escapes tend to happen around major ports, at least prior to the Civil War. Once there are blockading Union vessels along the southern coast, beginning in 1861, then you get a lot of people fleeing. It's a matter of debate about whether or not that should rightly be referred to as the Underground Railroad once the war begins. But the point is, is that once you have places to flee to and the Union blockading vessels become a major destination for African-Americans who are freeing enslavement, then they start to go there. But 
prior to the war, wherever there were concentrations of northbound shipping that would be leaving a southern port and going more or less directly in a matter of just a few days, traveling up the eastern seaboard, following the Gulf Stream, it's a fairly quick trip. And once you're aboard a northbound vessel, you don't have to do much. Uh, you just are there for the ride. So you don't have to hide. You don't have to evade posses of slave catchers. You don't have to worry about dogs uh, once you're out of the harbor. But so the concentrations tend to happen from big ports. And consequently, many of the chapters of the book focus on ports like Charleston, South Carolina and Hampton Roads, Virginia. And the exception, I would say, is in the northern Chesapeake Bay, where you do have a kind of option to combine both maritime and, and overland escapes to, to cross into a free state. And as you were talking earlier about slave narratives and, and sources from the 19th century, late 18th, early 19th century that talk a great deal about maritime dimensions of the Underground Railroad, something popped in my head. Surely if the enslaved people are aware, then most certainly the people from whom they are fleeing are definitely aware. And do we have a sense of how this maritime avenue shapes laws, how state governments respond to enslaved people who are fleeing, or how the enslavers themselves are reacting to this possibility? There are a number of really important indications that, that show us just how aware the Southern owner class and the administrators and politicians who are in charge of Southern municipalities, they're very much aware that this is a huge economic problem. This represents a loss of capital for them. It represents a loss of really valuable property and a loss of productivity for their waterfront labor force. And the way that we know that is that they are uh, enacting both state laws and municipal regulations that are designed to stop this sort of sieve of people fleeing regularly out of, out of Southern ports and harbors. So one of the things that they do, they create commissions and commissioners who are empowered to search vessels before they leave harbor, specifically for fugitive slaves. They have, in some cases, stations are set up to fumigate vessels so that they can drive out anyone who might be hiding below. Or Another thing that they, they do is they're terribly worried as the 19th century continues on that, that free black mariners who are serving aboard northern ships and who have seamen's protection papers to keep them from being harassed as free black men, they're worried that this population of free black mariners is helping to drive escapes by sort of encouraging their enslaved brethren to, to get on board ships and come north. Was this happening? Almost certainly. Can we prove it? Probably not, because most of this activity is, after all, illegal and clandestine, and people don't really leave a lot of evidence that they're doing this unless they are recounting it well after the war uh, when they're no longer in any danger. The penalties, uh, and here's another set of legislation that, that tells us just how dire the problem was. The penalties for assisting slaves to escape by any means, but for a free black man was, in North Carolina anyway, it was punishable by execution. Uh, and the penalties were very, very high for anyone who is caught assisting enslaved individuals to escape. The other way that we know about this is that in an attempt to recover their human property that is fled, owners would put notices in newspapers in very large numbers. So we have something like 200,000 runaway slave ads that are extant in early American newspapers. And slowly they are being gathered together in various archives. Currently, they're sort of dispersed in a number of archives around the country. But there is a project that I'm happy to talk about. One of our contributors is working on a project to gather all these together. But let me talk about the ads a bit before we talk about that project. 
what a typical runaway slave fugitive ad will do is it'll give it in a short paragraph, it'll give a description of the person who has run away. It'll tell something about their, their gender and their age and, um, and from where they, they left and who owned them, of course. But what's most valuable to researchers is it frequently will say what the owner suspects happened. And very frequently, we see references to people having been observed exchanging information with boatmen on the waterfront, having been observed hanging around the waterfront. It is presumed they're looking for a ship. Anyone who has maritime skill or maritime experience, this is noted in the ad because the assumption is they're going to use their maritime knowledge to get away. So again and again and again, we find ads that make reference uh, sometimes to specific vessels that are suspected of having helped and the masters of those vessels. By the way, another piece of legislation is that ship's masters who were thought to have been responsible for leaving with enslaved people on board often had to uh, either prove that they, they didn't have any hand in that or they were made to pay fines. So there are a number of ways that we know about how this works. How Tim, you've already mentioned that this is an edited collection and, and reference to a contribution by Megan Jeffries here with the Digital Project. We'll talk about that here in a minute. But you actually have the distinction of being uh, at least my first guest who has edited a volume of essays. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that process. It came out of your NEH collaborations. It came out of your experiences working on ships and diving in deeper to this topic. Tell us a little bit about the kind of process of putting together an edited collection. It's very much different than a monograph in that you are you are the ship captain of a volume, we'll say, that, but you've got a crew who's working for you and contributing in various ways. And what is that like? I've never done one, so I'm selfishly asking for myself. Well, when, when I initially pitched the idea to uh, UMass Press, uh, they were very excited about the project, and, and I was able to say to them, look, I've got a number of really wonderful scholars that I've come to know through having done the National Endowment for Humanities Program. I'd love to um, do this this project focused on this specific topic. And the chief editor asked me if um, if I would be interested in maybe making it a monograph and doing it myself. And I said, you know, that, that it's kind of you to ask, but there are these scholars who've been working on this in a quite focused way. And I'd really like to give an opportunity for uh, a number of people to really lend their voice to this volume. So if you look at the contributors, and they're all just really wonderful, gifted scholars, but there are different stages in their careers. Some of them are quite uh, young right at the beginning, and some of them are rather seasoned and have been around for a while. And they look at different geographical areas, and they have different areas of expertise and, and approaches to how they do this. So the edited volume allows for the display of scholarship that I couldn't do as an individual. And it also gives a greater breadth to the volume that I could never do because it required archival work in a huge number of places that simply wouldn't have been available to me as a, a single scholar working on this subject. So I felt very strongly that we should call on the expertise of the people who had been contributing to the National Endowment for the Humanities Program. And then also I sort of recruited a few other people to fill in holes of areas that needed to be covered in the volume. To answer your specific question about how to go about being an editor, I found that if I was really clear and produced written documents about what was expected, that laid out the parameters of the book very clearly and framed the main questions and framed the main thesis of the book in a way that was clear to all of my contributors who worked with me, and then gave them an opportunity to kind of discuss it. We, through email chains, we talked a little bit about how the volume would be set up. But once that was done, setting clear goals about target dates for drafts, 
setting up opportunities for them to uh, create in advance guides for the index, key terms that they wanted included in the index that would have come out of their contributions. And it all went really remarkably smoothly. Yeah, I've heard a lot of horror stories where the editors are just not browbeat, but in some level beg people to finish their essays. And it's it's tough, right? Sometimes, you know, people, things change and, and things come up, but I'm glad that you had uh, pretty smooth sailing, it sounds like, uh, for this experience. There was a, a period where the first drafts were finished and I was sending back my first round of editorial comments. And uh, there were a couple of scholars involved in the project who, who hadn't written for this type of a volume before or hadn't published anything in a while. In those cases, I had to be a bit more of a mentor editor and make suggestions about ways that the authors could develop their essays. One of the most innovative essays is by Alyssa Engelman, who works at Mystic Seaport Museum. I had known Alyssa for a long time. We had overlapped in graduate school, and her contribution ended up being one of those that was really highly praised by the reviewers, the anonymous reviewers, because she approached it in an innovative way as a public historian and tried to look at the issue of abolitionists in eastern Connecticut and about how they're kind of on the periphery of the Underground Railroad in some ways. But if you look at the Underground Railroad as a maritime experience, then they're potentially right in the thick of it. And the evidence that they left behind and how to interpret that for a for a public history audience like you have at Mystic Seaport. I think together, Alyssa and I thought about how best to present that material because it was so different from some of the more straightforward historical narratives that you find in the other chapters. Well, that's fascinating. So you would see this as a very much a collaborative process. It's not simply you putting out the, the CFP, as it were, the call for papers and then sending back some editorial notes later, but really working with authors in various ways to bring the, the volume together in a cohesive way. But that also oftentimes we'll be in our writing and we'll, we think we've got it, but then somebody else will see something that actually helps that essay become even stronger. And it's a great way of working with other people. Sometimes this is a very solitary enterprise, but it's, it's fun. I felt uh, very much that this was a collaborative process. We, I encouraged the authors to share around their manuscripts, and every author is different. Some of them preferred to do it very much as a solitary project, but using their own contacts and their own networks to have critical readings of the work before it was submitted. And the degree to which I interacted with the authors, everyone was different. Some I played a much more active role as editor, and others I didn't. But what was consistent is that we went through probably three rounds of editorial comments before the, the manuscripts went to the publisher. And I think that really helped the, uh, the process as well. Now, this was all happening pre-COVID. Probably if the volume were being produced during the year when everything was shut down, it might have been a quite different volume in some ways. Yeah, it could have turned out very differently. But in the case where it wasn't in COVID, I'm sure people had the opportunity to go back and check sources if they need to, whereas last year, that was largely a no-go. Yeah, we were all kind of stuck with our own home libraries and we found ourselves emailing colleagues for PDFs of things that we didn't have and you get by one way or another. Yeah, you sure do. Well, we talked a little bit about Mystic Seaport, but tell us a little bit more about some of the other contributions in the volume. What are some of the things that folks found? The book is organized geographically. We start in the South with a great chapter by uh, Michael Thompson who looks at Charleston, South Carolina and touches a little bit on Northern Georgia and stuff. And then we follow the maritime route up the Eastern Seaboard and David Soselsky's chapter looks at North Carolina and coastal North Carolina. Then we have two wonderful chapters by Cassandra Newby-Alexander and Cheryl LaRoche, one of them looking at Maryland. LaRoche's chapter looks at Annapolis and the Chesapeake Bay area and Cassandra looks at Virginia and 
the big ports on the Virginia seaboard. And then there's a really interesting chapter by a young scholar, uh, Morel Lukey, who looks at the Port of New York as a transition point, a kind of entrepot for people escaping because New York wasn't a safe place. Slavery still existed legally in New York State into the 1830s, and it was an active place for bounty hunters who were trying to re-enslave people and bring them back to the South. And so people usually tried to get through New York as quickly as they could if they were not legitimately free and couldn't prove it. A couple of the chapters that I think are, are really, they're all interesting, but to pick out a couple, um, Alyssa's chapter does a good job with looking at the Greenman family and tying that to public history. Lynn Travers, who focused on New Bedford communities of color and what they were doing and where they were living. Uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts has a number of distinctions beyond being the center of whaling and, and being known as the fugitive Gibraltar for people who were fleeing enslavement. They found a welcoming community and a safe community. New Bedford prided itself that no one was ever taken back into slavery from New Bedford, unlike Boston and a few other northern cities. It also had the highest percentage per capita of people of color in the city of any northern city, something on the order of six and almost six and a half percent in the 1840s and 50s. So that's pretty high. And and looking at the census, a very large number, 30% of those people identified their birthplace as the South. So if you're a person of color of African descent in the North in the 1840s and 50s, and you identify your birthplace as, you know, someplace in the coastal Carolinas or, you know, someplace south of the Mason-Dixon line, chances are, chances are pretty high that you are a fugitive. They stopped doing that, by the way, after 1850, after the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, people started to obscure their origins and say that they were born in Philadelphia or born in New York, even though previous documents, if you can trace them, you can see that they actually gave their birthplace as somewhere in the South. But what Lynn was able to do, Lynn Travers, uh, who was a colleague of mine at UMass Dartmouth, uh, he he was able to map where people lived using city directories from New Bedford in the 1830s that identified people of color in the directory. It also identified uh, not only where they were living, but what their job was, their primary source of income. And so he could make a really interesting study of what the Black population in New Bedford were doing for work and where they were living. To finish the volume, the sort of the capstone chapter, if you will, is focusing on new possibilities for research and the potential for research that is growing because of digitization. So what we have at Cornell University, Ed Baptist, who is the uh, main Cornell professor in the history department organizing this effort, is doing a program called Freedom on the Move, which is attempting to put all of the runaway slave ads into one big searchable database. And they're probably 20% of the way there right now, maybe a little more. It's been a while since I checked. But what they were finding is that a very, very large percentage of these slave ads that they did have in their database showed a maritime component to the escape. There's really no way to give a quantitative assessment of how many people comparatively escaped by land or by sea. The numbers just aren't there. You don't have reliable data. The activity was illegal and clandestine, so people don't talk about it. But what we can say is that you can quantify the numbers in the runaway ads, and they're high, uh, but they're currently incomplete. And you can also say that for practical reasons, almost every documented case of someone who escaped by land escaped from somewhere relatively close to a free state. They're just not traveling very far, no more than a few days walk at the most for the great majority of escapes by land. By contrast, you can say that the great majority of escapes from the far south, the coastal far south, almost all of them were by water.
And so that then sets up this dichotomy of studying the subject where you can say with some certainty that the maritime side of the Underground Railroad is extremely important if you want to understand escapes from certain regions of the South. And anywhere from coastal Florida, north, north um, east Florida, all the way up to the Chesapeake, most people are escaping by water. Well, I mean, that makes total sense too, especially as you were talking about the proximity to coastal landscapes or more northern border states. It would be very dangerous for someone trying to escape from central Alabama, trying to get north and, you know, walking directly north or probably even western Georgia. I mean, you get to the coast of Georgia, but uh, there might be some parts where it might make more sense just to head north over land. And that's, that's a lot of territory to get through and a lot of risk you're taking. There are some tributary rivers that feed into, say, the Ohio or the Mississippi that people near in northern Kentucky might have used those, but they're only navigable for a short way and they're good for canoes. You know, the, the issue uh, is compounded by if, if you're an overland uh, escapee, then you have to steal a canoe and that's maybe going to be noticed or steal some kind of boat. And then once you get to the Ohio, would you have the knowledge to safely cross the Ohio, you know, in the spring when it's flooding, it's that's a major impediment. So I don't think that very many people escaped by water in interior waterways. There were some cases, certainly, of people stowing away on northbound steamboats along the Mississippi, for example, carrying cotton bales and so on. But the problem with that, from the point of view of someone who's actively trying to make an escape, is that steamboats stop frequently. There are lots of navigational hazards in the Mississippi River. And you're never far from a port or a riverbank where someone who's caught can be put off and handed over to authorities to be returned to their owner. So I just don't think that it was a vi- as viable and as safe and as efficient an escape route as escaping on a seagoing vessel along the East Coast. And that was Megan Jeffries that wrote that last chapter. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, and she is currently a doctoral candidate at Cornell. Oh, that's great that you've got that wide career diversity in the volume, it sounds like, as you mentioned earlier. That's pretty fantastic. And as we were talking about these slaves ads, you know, that strikes me as something that would be really great to use in the classroom. And I'm wondering then how you hope readers in general will use this volume. What were your goals for it at the end of the day? And are you looking for people to take it into the classroom or supplement their own knowledge? What, uh, what are your hopes? One of the instructions that I gave to my authors was that we wanted to pitch this to a general audience because we wanted a lot of people to read it. But also the genesis of the volume came out of these National Endowment for the Humanities programs that were aimed at K-12 through teachers. And so what I would like to see, ideally, is that the impact of this volume over time will be a shifting of perception about the Underground Railroad. So that people who are educators at any level will start to change their pedagogical material to include a substantial component of maritime escapes in the Underground Railroad. So I'd like to see, as a result of this, uh, the development of a lot of new pedagogical material at the university level and at high school and middle school and even potentially uh, primary school so that the units that they teach will include the maritime side. And of course, the other thing that any researcher wants, this is very consciously a kind of cutting-edge book that makes some statements that are very much novel in the context of Underground Railroad studies. We would like to see new research come out of our volume. 
We'd like to see people take that as a point of departure and look more closely at some of the questions that we posed and maybe look more closely at some of the geographic regions we talked about. We would like to see folks look more closely at interior waterways and really study the hypothesis of just how many people might have been able to escape up the Mississippi and, and up the Ohio River and how they might have done that. And other places that were left out, by the way, there were geographic regions that we couldn't cover because we just didn't have enough space. And But southward from um, say, Georgia to Florida and then into the Caribbean, that would have been an option because any of the European colonies in the Caribbean would have had slavery outlawed prior to the Civil War, with some exceptions like Cuba. But also uh, leaving through the Gulf of Mexico down to Mexico. Uh, Mexico was a free state by the 1830s and slavery had been outlawed. And so we didn't really look at that Gulf of Mexico parameter of the story. And I'd like to see someone do that. I always like edited collections of essays because they do exactly what you just described. They are a tool for advancing particular areas of pedagogy, but they're also designed to poke the bear and to get people thinking about what has not been done and what needs to be done. And it sounds like you've got some concrete ideas about where people should go next. We were planning a, a book launch conference in New Bedford in, well, late summer 2021. We've now postponed that to next year. But what we'd like to do is get the word out to a lot of scholars who are thinking about this and invite them to come. We, we want to make this a showcase for most of the contributors to the volume, but then have discussants that will open this up and, and really kind of explore and ask penetrating questions about what we left out and what we might have done better and uh, and, and things that, that we didn't think of. Look for that to be happening sometime in late August or early September of 2022. That sounds terrific. Well, let us know when that is. We can help spread the word for you. Absolutely. More conversations after the break. Hi, friends. Did you know that the Center for Digital History also produces live stream interviews with some of your favorite authors? Head over to www.mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks to watch our past programs and register for upcoming events. We hope to see you online soon. And now, back to the show. Now, what book are you reading right now? The Underground Railroad material was really a departure for me academically. And, and as you may know, my main research fields really focus on early modern Europe and specifically on the Portuguese overseas colonial effort. And so the book that I'm engaged in right now is a brand new volume that just came out from some colleagues of mine in Lisbon, Elder Carvalhal, Andre Murtaira, and uh, Roger Lee de Jesus, uh, Jesus. Their book is, is an edited volume called The First World Empire, Portugal War and the Military Revolution. And it looks at early modern Portuguese colonization from a military perspective about how they managed it with such meager human resources, which was a very small country. But it focuses on the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. Oh, well, I'll check that out because I'm, I'm pretty interested in the Portuguese. Well, they had the good sense to <laughs> to publish it in English. You know, a lot of very, very good Portuguese historiography is published only in Portuguese, which relatively few people in the Anglophone world read. And so happily, this one uh, is, uh, is accessible. Who is the author you most admire? So I thought a little bit about this. Um, I would have to go with, uh, with Eric Arthur Blair, better known as George Orwell. I started reading Orwell when I was really young, and, and he taught me a lot about writing. And when I think about Orwell, I think about precision of use of speech, concision, saying really poignant and pointed things with very few words, and also incisiveness. I mean, he had an eye for cutting through a situation and describing it in very clear terms. This penetrating analysis with an economy of words is what I think of when I think of Orwell. 
I can say with certainty that I don't usually meet the high bar that he set with my own writing, but uh, it's certainly something I strive to. Well, it's good to have models to aspire to, certainly. What is the most exciting document you've discovered in the archive? So I don't know if I can narrow it down to a single document, but I'm working on a, on a big project about medicine in the early modern world and the, and the circulation of medical knowledge in the Portuguese colonial sphere. And one of the great things about that is you get to work in really interesting archives in various parts of the world. Working in archives in India, in Goa, and in Rome, the Jesuit archive, and in Rio de Janeiro, and in Paris, I uncovered very early Jesuit medical recipe handbooks that Jesuit missionaries were collecting in manuscript from the various places they were working in various parts of the world. And this all comes together in a, in a final manuscript from 1766, which is held in the Jesuit archive in Rome, which is a compilation that shows that they're blending and mixing medical ideas about healing and the substances that they're using, that they're collecting from India, from the Amazon, uh, from Africa, wow. and from China. And they're putting them together in recipes that they very carefully guarded because they knew how valuable they were. Jesuits were making a lot of money from selling medicines in the various places where they were practicing their evangelizing activities. And so this one document from 1766, which includes a lot of material from earlier documents about medical knowledge from different indigenous peoples, that's probably the most exciting thing I've had my hands on. And it's, it's massive. It's probably 300 pages of, of medical information. Wow, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's very, it, it was very exciting. I may have disturbed my fellow readers in the reading room when I first got it by making little noises of excitement. <laughs> I think we've all done that. Where some, yeah. You find something you didn't expect and, <laughs> and you get shushed by the librarian because you've said something out loud. <laughs> yeah, that happens. You know, just as a side to that, um, I talk about all these archives that I've had the very, very good fortune to work in. Um, but where I live in New Bedford is is a stone's throw, just a few minutes walk from the biggest collections of whaling logbooks in the world at the New Bedford Whaling Museum and at the New Bedford Free Public Library. You know, together about half of the Yankee whaling logbooks in the United States are kept just very, very close to where I live. And so it should come as no surprise that I turned my attention to some of those caches of documentation when we, we started doing this this project. Well, tell us a little bit about that. What kind of evidence are you finding in these logbooks? I have a, a side project, uh, I should say a parallel project that is... Um, How many projects do you have? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's a funny meme going around on the internet. You've probably seen it where you people start a new project and then you get excited about it. And then you go on and you think about the next project. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm guilty of that. But ones that are actually actively being funded and moving towards publication. This one is a pretty solid one, this parallel project, because I started thinking maybe five or six years ago that there was a lot of material in these logbooks that could be scientifically useful for people who study weather over the long duration and people who do climate model. Uh, and so I'm where I live in Massachusetts, I'm not very far from Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. It's just across Buzzards Bay from um, New Bedford, right near Woods Hole. I have a colleague at Woods Hole. Uh, her name is Caroline Umenhofer, who's a, an ocean scientist and um, paleoclimatologist. She and I are working on a project where we're gathering data from daily logbook entries, uh, from whaling logbooks that go all over the world. Whaling ships followed 
their prey, the whales, into some of the most remote and least visited parts of all the oceans. They go into the mid-Pacific, they go into the South Atlantic, into the Arctic, uh, South Indian Ocean, and uh, they go where merchant ships and military ships don't go. And so the weather data that they contain, these logbooks, and, and every day from, they would give their position at noon, and they would give at least three times a day Typically, the wind speed, wind direction, precipitation, maybe a comment about the, the temperature, and all of this weather data, which is locked up in these manuscript logbooks, most of which are not digitized, is a goldmine for climate scientists. And so, myself and a couple of other researchers are feeding data to our colleagues at Woods Hole. And we're expanding the project, too, to include vessels from the Dutch East India Company and the Portuguese uh, merchant ships that were going out to the Indian Ocean for the Portuguese Eastern Empire. And so we have plans to really vacuum up a lot of data from ship logbooks going back three or 400 years if we include the colonial vessels, too. Whoa, that's awesome. It's a, it's a lot of fun, and it's, um, it's also very time-consuming, and uh, it requires a fair amount of funding. So we were fortunate to get some money from the National Science Foundation, and we've gotten some nice funding from some private foundations too. So this is an entire different type of research than what I'm used to doing in the humanities. So once you start working with the scientists, they know where to go for for larger amounts of funding. <laughs> Got to fund those labs. To put it mildly. Well, finally, how do you hope people remember your work? You know, I really hope that, and 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 we've thought this from the beginning. We really wanted this Sailing to Freedom book to be a major rethinking, a fundamental rethinking of the Underground Railroad. To think of it not just as a terrestrial phenomenon, but as something that people who were striving for freedom on the coast were doing in large numbers to escape. And the other thing about this is that it really puts the focus on the fugitive, the the freedom seeking person. Because it's their own skills that they've won through their labor on waterfronts in the South that allows them to do this. And so if you think about the question of agency, this focus on the maritime side of the Underground Railroad tends to put the agency right in the hands of the people who are choosing to flee enslavement and seek freedom in the North. I hope that those major points will become a much more front and center part of the Underground Railroad story. Tim, this has been a pleasure. I've learned a lot. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been great, and I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to talk about the book and to, uh, to get the word out on it, and thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. I'm Jim Ambusky, your host and producer. Jeanette Patrick offered editorial assistance with additional support provided by Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your favorite programs. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. Find this and other episodes by heading over to our website at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. 